On this episode, we're talking about how a side hustle can get you on a fast track to financial independence. My name is Lou Blazer. You're listening to Second Breaks. This is episode 113. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Second Breaks, a weekly show where we explore all the ways that we can navigate the future of work, make smart career moves, and thrive in a changing world. Now, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I am so thrilled that you found me and the show. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a background, we're actually, we've been exploring the topic of side hustle for the past few weeks now. And this here is a continuation of the series. My guest today is Kim, who had a thriving engineering career and a side hustle, both of which were in a field of work that she loved. Her initial inclination to start a moonlighting gig may have been to explore what else she could do within the field. And that in and of itself may have been an interesting story already. But what I found really striking about Kim's story is how her side hustle sped up her and her husband's goal to achieve financial independence. In addition to chatting about how her side gig got started, Kim and I also talked about specific financial decisions and actions that she and her husband took that positioned them to quit their day job debt and mortgage-free. Kim shared how she took advantage of inexpensive and often free resources to help her build her freelance career and turn it into a small business that today allows her to take the part of the year off, to do other things and simply spend time with their daughter. It's rare that I have a conversation that makes me want to go back to my 20s and do things smarter, especially when it comes to money management. But my chat with Kim definitely did that and motivated me to be more deliberate and make smarter decisions about finances today. And I know you definitely will as well. Now, before I transition to my chat with Kim, I wanted to let you know that in addition to this podcast, we also publish Signals. Signals is a weekly newsletter of curated industry trends and the most current strategies to help you navigate and position yourself for the future of work. So for the full Second Breaks experience and to get a well-rounded set of tools to help you figure out your and take action on your career move, make sure that you subscribe for free to Signals. And you can do that at secondbreaks.com forward slash signals. Okie dokie, let me get out of the way. Here's Kim describing how her side hustle got started. It was the end of 2008, so right during the recession. And I was working in the construction industry, so very, very slow. Within the first month on the job, we got a 10% pay cut across the board. Entire departments were getting laid off. And after three months on the job, my manager took our whole department out to lunch and he pulled a Jerry Maguire and he said, I'm leaving, who's coming with me? So we all left. <laughs> we took our group and we moved to another company um, that was a, you know more stable, more long-term contracts for building projects. My day job was I was a um, consulting engineer specializing in green building design. So um, sustainability, energy efficiency, renewable power, those things, which was, it was a blessing because 
although the construction industry was slowing down, that corner of it was ramping up. So what people were building, they were building green. That's interesting. I didn't know that, that there was actually a pocket of the construction industry that sort of survived or didn't, you know, the, the mess. I think at the time, it was probably about 5% of new construction in the U.S. was going for this, this type of construction. It, it was an exciting day job. I had studied sust- sustainability and building design in college, so I liked what I was doing, but I didn't necessarily like uh, the format of a full-time job. Mm. So I've always been the kind of person who gets my work done really quickly. <laughs> and when you're given 40, 40 hours of work and you finish it at lunchtime on Monday – and then you can't leave <laughs> because you have to stay. You have to, you know, keep your butt in a seat for 40 hours. And so I knew long term that was not going to be something I wanted to do for 40 years. So about two years into my career, I went to a conference for the green building industry, and I met a woman at a. It was a happy hour. Some vendor had had put it on, and. We had a mutual friend, so we got introduced, and she said, I'm looking for somebody with your expertise to help me with projects across the world that it's all going to be online, so you do as much or as little as you want, fit it into your schedule. And I I thought, this sounds awesome, because the the kind of projects I was working on during my day job were were a little dry. It was a lot of, um, you know, government contracts and not as exciting, I guess. So I thought this will be a chance to broaden my experience. I get to see buildings that are built in all different countries. So it's kind of like going on a trip, but, <laughs> but it was all remote. I didn't actually go to, you know, Dubai. <laughs> um, so there wasn't a conflict of interest with my day job. I double checked because I didn't want to get in trouble. And so I started doing that and it was nights and weekends for two years And it was the kind of job that, you know, my day job was paid hourly or salary. And my side gig was paid by the contract, like by the project. So sort of like with an attorney where the more you do something over and over again, the faster you become. So something that used to take me 10 hours would now take me three after two years of doing it over and over and over again. So it got to the point where with the rates that they established, I was making more in my side job than my day job, you know, you know, a lot less time. So eventually, after four years, I dropped the day job. <laughs> because it was, you know, the, the dollars per hour and having to drive to an office and, you know, business travel and all that, it was, it was draining. We were about to start a family. So I knew I, it was a good time to go. This goes back to the nature of the construction industry. But was there ever a concern on your part that, you know, is this really sustainable? Is there going to be is there going to be continued projects? Uh, I, I did worry about that at first. So what I had started doing from the beginning was keeping really detailed records of how many assignments I was getting every month, which months were higher and lower, because it, it's definitely very seasonal with construction. So during the summertime, um, folks are out building their buildings. They're not documenting it for me to check their boxes. 
So summers were always really, really slow, which was nice for taking a summer vacation. Um, but you, yeah, I would have to pre-plan that out as far as, you know, paying myself. I'll quickly go back and confirm what you said before you started doing the freelance work, when you still had a day job that you made sure that it was, there was no uh, conflict of interest. So did you actually talk to your employer? Did you tell them that this is something that you were thinking of doing? So you disclosed that you were going to do this? No. <laughs> so just being honest, no. Um, so what I, I had talked to another person who worked at my company who was also doing freelance. Apparently a lot of engineers with day jobs also freelance. Um, and there's some pretty well-defined lines as far as a conflict of interest. Um, the kinds of projects that my day job was doing did not overlap at all with the kinds of stuff I was doing at nighttime. Um, different clients, different locations, different markets altogether, right? Um, most of my day job work was through the government and most of the night job work was private owners. Um, so yeah, I remember I, I kept it a secret for a really long time, um, from my boss and I don't, I don't think it was actually a secret because like I said, it's a very small community and I'm pretty sure he figured it out within about two weeks and just didn't say anything. Uh, <laughs> but what's funny is when I, I left that job. So this was like the Jerry Maguire boss that moved us all over. I stayed there for two years and it got so, so slow. So I jumped and went to another um, company, which that boss was actually a former business partner. So like I said, it's all very small. Um, and so my my last boss, I said during the job interview, by the way, I'm doing this thing on the side. Like, I don't want to hide this anymore. Are you OK with that? And he said, why didn't you tell me earlier? <laughs> because because in his mind, this person is getting continuing education, right? She's getting more experience, more exposure to projects that's going to help her perform better at the day job. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even think about that angle. So that is so true. I am going to make note of that because I know that is the question that I get asked often is how do I talk about this with my current employer? And that is a brilliant angle, um, actually. So that is great. You can spin it and you can say, you, you can kind of spin it in a, it's extra training that you're not pay, having to pay for, right? You and your husband, you made some very specific sort of decisions, strategic decisions that allowed you to quit your day job from a financial perspective. Um, so one of those, for example, was leaving San Francisco, right? Which, and, and moving to Florida. I was wondering if you could share with us some of the, some of those financial, smart financial decisions that you guys were making at that time that made it easier for you to quit the day job. My advice for any freelancer is to have a really good picture of your expenses every month, like your living expenses. Um, because you don't know how much you need to work if you don't know how much it costs you to live your life. So if you're, if your family is spending $4,000 a month, well, you know, you got to make more than that because you have taxes and business expenses on top of it. Um, so for, for me, the, the main driver was I wanted to work less. Like I didn't want to work 40 hours a week when we were having little kids at home. 
So the key to that was we need to get our expenses down as low as we can. And, and we were not entirely, <laughs> um, you know, you, you hear stories about startups where they're all eating ramen and sleeping on air mattresses. We were not that, that intense because we didn't need to, we didn't need to be, my husband was still working full time. So, um, but the biggest thing was our mortgage. So we had, I think our mortgage, we had a 15 year loan in Florida. I think it was about $1,600 a month. And I said, I don't want to feel like I have to work to cover this every month. So for those two years that I was working the day job and the side job, we took 100% of my take-home pay from my day job and my take-home pay from the side job and put it into the mortgage, prepaying it. Basically, you were living off of his salary. Yep. So we managed to pay the house off in two and a half years. That is unheard of. Like, I don't know. I've never heard that. Story. It, well, you know what? We we calculated with the interest payments. Like, if we had just let it go for, if we had a 30-year term and let it go, we would basically be buying two houses when it's all said and done. So we, anytime I would get a, a payment from my client, I would put it to the penny straight into the principal and you look back and you see like, oh, you paid $2,314 and 75 cents. It was just a mental thing where I said, anything from that bucket of cash is going into the house. But as far as living on one income, it was, it wasn't really a much of a challenge for us because Florida, central Florida is not a very expensive place mm -hmm. to live in the first place. We could not have done this in San Francisco. That was, that was not in the cards. Um, but, you know, we drove our cars for a very long time. My husband, he had a 13-year-old car from high school that his boss would tease him and say, are we not paying you enough? <laughs> um, you know, we, with pretty much every aspect of our life, we went with a, a cost-effective option. So for vacations, we would take road trips. Um we would go camping with our friends instead of staying in hotels. And um, we would pack our lunch every day. <laughs> My husband would, he was the king of this. He would make like a giant 30 portion stock pot of soup <laughs> and, and bring it to work every day. Um, so he, it, it got to kind of just be our routine. Right. Um, but we had met in grad school where we were living off of a grad school stipend. So we, already knew how to how to live off just a little bit and we kind of just kept doing that if that makes sense that definitely makes sense and what i totally admire about that story um and a part of me wishes that i could go back <laughs> myself to change the way that i did it because like you the, the usual story is as our salaries go you know increase so does our expenses right so example would be oh let me buy a new car because now we can yeah. afford a, uh, to buy a car right or you know now we can afford we can afford a bigger house like lots of people i know um would say well what what is the size of the mortgage that my company or my bank would allow me and I would max that out right and and so as as the salary increases so does the expenses 
right? And um, and I I know for a fact because I was like that. That's basically what I did, right? And so you just keep upscaling. At that time, I was living in New York, and um, my apartment was just getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> And I just kept moving to, uh, you know, a bigger apartment because now I can afford the bigger apartment. So that's why I was like, oh, my God, I wish that I had taken that sort of attitude because look where I would be. I would, you know, in a, would be in a very different place because that allowed you to make some decisions or some other options. Uh, you, you were able to play around with different options because of that was the goal. um to like, I want to quit at some point. Was that the goal? Or I just, we want to be financially independent where I didn't want to have a mortgage. Like what was the goal? Do you remember? I think at some point we could have seen ourselves having a more inflated, inflated lifestyle. Like we, we lived in central Florida. So we spent a lot of time out on the lakes mm -hmm. and there, there was this sort of tangential dream of like, owning a lake house in Florida and having a jet ski. We did have a jet ski. That was, that was fine. Um, I got to tell you, you can have a jet ski and get like 95% of the enjoyment of owning a boat <laughs> for a fraction of the price because <laughs> you're out on the water, you're having yes, fun yeah. and you don't have to store it off site anywhere. <laughs> there's, a, there's a frugal tip right there. Get a jet ski. I think my husband at one point, envisioned that he would stay at his company and move up because he he was a high achiever and he was kind of on that track um but it changes right so you've probably heard the saying you don't quit a job you quit a manager he had he loved his job in the beginning he was in the field that he'd wanted to be in since he was a little kid and he you know he still consults back to that industry because he he it's his passion um but a couple of months with the wrong manager will make anybody freshen up their resume and start looking around, right? Because that's the person that you're spending more time with than your spouse every day. And if you're not a match. So, yeah, I, I, I knew from the beginning, um, from the beginning of dating my husband, that I wanted to stay home with our kids, but not be a full-time stay-at-home mom. I wanted to do something but I didn't want to be in an office. I wanted to be, you know, part-time flexible contract from home. And I didn't really know how that was going to work as a, as a corporate engineer. So when, when the opportunity it became real for you that you could actually quit the day job and go full time. And so I guess you, it, we could call that a freelance career at that point. You're thinking back to that moment. What do you think is the hardest part of the transition? I, I wish I would have done it sooner. Um, however, I was really conservative because I knew that I wanted to make sure that we were set, that, you know, that, that we, that I had enough experience at the day job that I could go back if I wanted to. Mm. Right. Um, another big thing was I needed my license. So you have to work for four years in engineering under a licensed engineer to be able to sit for the test and get your own license. But I knew that I needed that credential because that's the, you know, even though I don't, I don't even use it to, you know, day to day, I maintain it because that's the foot in the door to go get a job if you ever want to again. 
Now, I wanted to go back to the timing because this was one of the things when I le- when I read your story, I was like, I was smiling ear to ear. And I said, I cannot <laughs> wait to talk to you about this because uh, two things happened when you made that decision. One was you got that certification, like you passed the, the exam or the board. And, um, and so, yay, you can finally, you know, that was the thing. But then you also found out you were pregnant. And... And I was like, oh my goodness, to many people that was, you know, making a decision to not quit the day job is like insanity because it's like that you will need your insurance primarily, right? The insurance. But that wasn't a concern for you. So can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a really big day. <laughs> I had a lot going on that day. Um, so I for the first few years after I quit my job, my husband stayed on in his job. So he added me to his insurance and added our daughter. So that was something to kind of buffer the transition to both of us going full-time freelance. Um, but I would say, you know, this was after the Affordable Care Act kicked in. So we had that option to buy our own health insurance on the market. And, you know, I've, I've had some folks chime in and say, well, that was so easy for you because you weren't a single mom and this and that. Well, if I, of course it was easy. I wasn't a single mom. Like that's the point we were married and starting a family. Um, But I look back and, you know, the numbers work out that if I had not had, like if my husband was also a freelancer, for example, or if I was a single mom, I I was making enough from the side gig that I could have paid for my own health insurance. Uh huh. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But it's not a leap I would have taken if the side gig was only paying twenty thousand dollars a year, because that would that would have been my health insurance premiums. From conversations with folks who are who dream of leaving a day job or like your your traditional sort of employer employee arrangement, uh, one of the things that stop uh, that stop them from making that decision is the insurance coverage and a lot of them uh, feel that it is not it is impossible to be able to find the insurance on your own so I, to that i would say it's not a perfect industry we have we have done basically every option available for health coverage since we since we got off an employer's plan just to clarify for the listeners uh, your husband is also uh, no longer in a day job with the insurance coverage, right? Yeah. Our our current work situation is we both work part-time part of the year. So like we take summers off. So I would, to that, I would say we did the math because um, when you look at your pay stub from your day job, you can see how much you're paying for your employer's coverage. And sometimes for a family, that can be $700 a month, right? But we not, we might not see it because it doesn't get deposited into our bank account and then we write the check later, right? So you are paying it out of your total compensation. And when you, when you become a small business owner, you're looking at the total compensation. You're looking at everything that you're bringing in and then what you're taking out. So you know, there, there's benefits, you know, if you're a small business owner, you can deduct the cost of your health insurance. So you're not paying taxes on that, just like your employer wasn't paying taxes on it when they gave it to you. But I, you know, my husband, he has received full-time job offers um, in the industry that he left. 
And he was tempted at one point because of the health insurance, but he looked at it and he did the math and he said, for me to get on your Cadillac plan is going to cost me more than the plan I'm on now Mm. as as a self-employed person. And when you ask um, human resources in the recruiting department, can you just give me the cash instead? It's just, (laughs) they don't know what to do. They don't know how to answer it. So um, I, I would say it's, you know, for us, we're, we're healthy people. We don't have um, pre-existing conditions or any of that to grapple with. And I think if you're in that position, um, you can save a lot of money by going on your own and, and you know, buying your own health insurance. It, it just takes a, a little bit of um, research, I imagine, uh, in terms of like where, where to get the actual insurance from. Mm-hmm. My husband does all of that. So I'm aware of what's going on and I know what our coverage is and I know who, you know, the name on the card. Um, but as far as deciding which plan we're going to go with and all that, he he's on the phone, he's on the internet, he's doing the applications. And um, we've, we've kind of done it all. And it changes year to year. There's a component of the freelance, becoming a freelancer that's just like, where do I get my clients, right? Or, or the managing the, the cash flow part. But there's an element of a freelance career where you're a business owner, the, sort of, you know, along the lines of what you, you talked about. So where did you, I guess that is the question, is like, where did you, did you, did you go to a business school? Like, where did you learn the business, running the business elements of it? Okay, so I love to read, and I read dozens of books. I still have them down in the basement, and it was all about you – know, the, the titles are so cheesy, but they're like, incorporate and get rich, and like, you know, all these things about the, the financial benefits of having your own business. But as far as setting up the company and, and getting it going and all that, um, in Orlando, there's a small business development center. So it's run by a partnership between the University of Central Florida and the Small Business Administration from the government. And they have a bunch of free classes, a bunch of free um, resources online. They have business plan templates that you can, you know, fill out for yourself. They'll help you get a loan if you need it from a bank. Uh, You get a career coach and it's all free. Right. So, well, it's free because it's paid with your tax dollars. So use it. It's like the yes. library. If you're paying for it, you should use it. But I, I had a, I had a mentor who her husband was getting his MBA at the time, while she was going through the small business development center, and he would look at the stuff she was getting covered. He said, "Why am I getting an MBA? You're covering everything. Like it's the same. It's like um, the cliff notes of an MBA, right?" And we we had accountants that would come in and teach us, you know, bookkeeping and QuickBooks and all. They they would hold your hand through the whole way. And I think most towns that have a university also have this resource, right? So, yeah, it's it's there. The information is there, but I didn't know what a small business development center was until I had a mentor who had just gone through the process herself. I actually wasn't even aware of that. And I live in Florida. But <laughs> so this was something that's um, available. It's available, I suppose. You just sign up for it, these classes. Uh, and they, you know, one thing that they helped me with was, um, since it's just me, right? I was running my own business. They helped me get the certification through the city and the county for a women-owned business enterprise. 
which kind of made me a target for a lot of, uh, I mean, a good target, right? <laughs> um, for a lot of big government projects, because all their engineering firms, they would say, well, we need 10%, you know, minority or women on business participation. And 10% is also about the amount of the contract that we were going to earmark for the sustainability piece. Can we link up with you? And I already worked with all those people before anyway. So they knew, they knew who I was, right. They, so it, it's, um, it, that was really helpful to, to have that connection. And it was really easy actually to fill out all the paperwork. Did you do that immediately, like from day one, or did you like, you know, start off and say, let me try this out first and then let me <laughs> incorporate later? I didn't. So I was a uh, sole proprietor for the first two years, like when I still had my day job. And then I, I incorporated in 2013 when I decided to do it on my own. Um, but as far as all the women-owned business stuff, I didn't chase that until a client came to me and said, we want to work with you. Do you have this thing? And I said, no, I don't have it because I never thought I'd work for, you know, the city of Orlando or whatever. And they said, well, we've got this big, giant project coming up and we want to use you. And we want to also satisfy this requirement. So that's what prompted that that whole process. And then when everybody hears, oh, Kim's got that certification, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, because there weren't. First of all, there weren't a lot of sustainability consultants in town anyway. Um, and second of all, there weren't a lot with with that you know, niche because I'm in engineering and it's not a female dominated profession. Moving on to a slightly different topic. I was just curious because I mean, you are still doing that bit like that sort of freelance job or freelance projects. Um, and then your husband is doing something also, but also still within the mechanical engineer sort of space, but different projects. But I was just wondering if you are looking to, or have you guys started to sort of parlay this experience into something else? So for example, teaching other people how to do this or, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Well, so for a long time, I had been missing that social component of working with other people. <laughs> And yeah, because um, the work that you do is it always uh, work from home? All, yes. Yeah. 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 The okay. only time I would see people is like for one week a year at a conference. So it, um, we, you know, we Skype a lot, but it's still it's not the same. So I had been kind of wanting more of that social connection with people, and especially because we live in Wyoming now, and there's not a lot of people here, so. Anytime I tell someone, yeah, I'm from Wyoming, they say, oh, I've never been there. <laughs> That's the response every time. Um, so it, it got to a point where, you know, throughout our marriage, we had been reading um, blogs about personal finance and, um, you know, self-employment and making that that switch and, you know, kind of taking back control of your time again. Um, and the main lever for that is controlling your finances, right, to allow that freedom. And so earlier this spring, I decided I want to write about our story. I want to tell what we did. And it was with the mindset of I'm talking to my two best friends who are still working full time in engineering, but they've got families now and their priorities are kind of changing. And so I said, I just kind of want to tell people sort of like how I followed the prescriptive path of my mentor, I want to tell people exactly what we did. 
so that they can see that this is possible and that you're not stuck with, you know, the kind of job that society tells you you're supposed to have <laughs> and, and how you can actually do that um, numbers wise. So I, yeah, I, I started writing and um, it, it kind of made a splash pretty quickly, um, especially among women engineers. That, that was a nice surprise. I, I would imagine because um, it's almost like if you're in that space and if, you know, if, if they didn't know who you, you know, if they didn't know you or they didn't know your story and they're only looking at their bosses or their peers who are also, they're all in the same boat. They're all working and, and, and it's almost like, well, this is the path. This is it. This, what, what other options do I have? unless I am financially independent, which is the key, right? And so, and and how do I become financially independent? Is that even possible? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the, you know, there's, there's different um, levels of financial independence. You know, the, the biggest, I guess the first one for us was paying off our regular debt, like our credit cards and student loans. Um, and then after that was paying off the mortgage. That's a big thing. I mean, our, I mean, our parents still have mortgages and, and they're, they're technically retired. Right. So having that kind of freedom of knowing like you've got a place to live forever and you don't have to make that payment to the bank anymore. Um, that opens up a lot of options to take risks with your career. And another thing I like to tell engineers is, you know, freelancing can be a lot more lucrative than working for somebody else. And especially if, if you're in a niche where you're often slow at your day job and maybe your manager doesn't actually need you on 40 hours a week, you know, propose the idea of being a contractor. Because if you're working 15 or 20 hours a week, right, then they don't need to lay you off if they're slow. Right? That was a big thing where I where I was working. And you know, I think as far as the way consulting engineering works, you're you're paid your salary, your salary, your salary is based on your your billable hourly rate. And so, for a typical engineer, it might be say you're starting at sixty thousand dollars a year salary, so thirty dollars an hour. Your boss is not billing you to the client at thirty dollars an hour; they're billing you at a hundred or one hundred twenty dollars an hour. So when you go freelance, you put in the contract that you want $100 an hour, right? So that $70 an hour, that's what you use to pay your um, Social Security and Medicare taxes, your health insurance, your business expenses. But you still get to keep a big portion of that 70% because you're not paying your boss's 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 salary and benefits, right? You're not paying that overhead, um, so, yeah, you, you can keep that same earning level by working fewer hours by contract directly. Exactly. So you said that you started writing about this work. Where, where, where is this place? Like, where can we find this writing that you've started to do? So my website, it's thefrugalengineers.com. Is there one or two books that has made an impact on you or your career or just basically your your perspective on on you know how you handle financials and in your life basically on personal finance mm -hmm. the best one that i like is called your money or your life and it, it explains the correlation between 
money and your time, which is your life energy, right? So if you if you earn thirty dollars an hour and you go buy a pair of jeans, you had to work, you know, an hour for those jeans, right? Calculating your hourly rate and and what your time is worth, and then when you go to spend money, is that worth a week of my time to go to Disney World for a day, right? Um, it it there's a lot of exercises in the book. Um, I like that because I like math. <laughs> and as far as freelancing, it was a book I read before I jumped ship, and I, I think it was called The Anti Nine to Five Guide. And it was written by a young woman who. Um, she was like, she had a very short corporate career and then went full-time freelance. And she talks about how to calculate your hourly rate and negotiate contracts and yeah, manage yourself as a small business. Really good. Thank you so much, Kim. This has been fantastic. I love this conversation. <laughs> I know this is going to be one of those conversations that I will keep referring to, um, <laughs> to folks. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. I hope that you found this episode useful for the show notes, links, and the edited transcript of my conversation with Kim. Head on over to secondbreaks.com forward slash podcasts. For the full Second Breaks experience, remember to subscribe to Signals to get curated industry trends, strategies, and real talk about the future of work. We continue with the Side Hustle series next week with Michelle Mazur, who was progressing nicely in her corporate marketing role, except her heart wasn't in it, so she started a side hustle to get back to what she really loved to do and has since grown that into a sustainable full-time consulting business. And so if you haven't yet, now is a good time to subscribe to the podcast via whatever app it is that you're using right now to listen to this episode. Or if you happen to be listening to this on the website, you're going to find options for podcast apps right there below the audio player as well. One last favor, if you like listening to this podcast and find it useful, I would appreciate it so much if you would share and tell your friends about it. Okie dokie, I will be back next week with Michelle and her side hustle story. Until then, keep on making your dent, my friend. Cool beans. <laughs>